So I'm working on a book, and uh, that was what my workation was about. A lot of research, a lot of writing,、uh, trying to get this book proposal out of my body. And one of the things I took myself back by was Howard Gardner's book, Leading Minds. Does anybody know the book, Leading Minds? Howard Gardner's book, Leading Minds. He's a he's a psychologist who gave us emotional intelligence. And in this book about leaders, he studies 11 leaders:、uh, Margaret Thatcher,、um, Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he tries to make a what he calls a an anatomy of leadership. And he says leaders tell compelling stories that change the stories that are already in the minds of the audience of listeners. Leaders tell compelling stories that change the story. They they tell stories that make people move, make them change their minds. He says the stories that people most want to hear are stories that answer our existential questions: Am I okay? Does my life matter? Does the hot mess around me have something to do with something I've done? And that kind of question makes us feel more in control. Like, if so, I can fix it. Will I leave the world better for my progeny? Those are the kinds of questions he says that human beings are most in search of answers for. And he goes on to say that the leaders who who tell the stories that are most fully followed, most fully embraced. Uh, tell a story that fits, and what he means by fits is it's got some kind of resonance with your past. Makes sense that this would be the next part of the story.、Um, it fits because it、um, answers those questions. It fits because the leader's life is congruent with the story they're telling. So they're walking the walk, they're talking the talk, and this is what this is what this means. So, with that in mind, I'm looking at this beautiful passage in Luke 15,、um, and thinking about Jesus. Now, Gardner did not study Jesus, but it's almost like he did, because here's Rabbi Jesus, who's like the best storyteller ever, right? Telling these stories, and in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories in a row that fit. He says, "The kingdom of God is like a place where a woman loses a coin." And when she finds the coin, she rejoices. The kingdom of God is like a place where a shepherd loses a sheep, one sheep out of one hundred, and he leaves the ninety-nine and he goes to find the one. And when he finds it, he rejoices. And then he says, "The kingdom of God is a place where a man loses a son, and the son is lost." But then found the son is dead, but then alive, and the father throws such a big throwdown, a barbecue with some, you know, beef and some sweet potato pie and some potato salad, that the brother gets jealous. The brother left home gets jealous. So you think about Jesus telling these stories that fit. He's talking to people who are like him. In a place and time not so unlike ours, but in that place, in that ancient place, in Palestine, where Rome is occupying everything, where Jesus's people are the ones on the margins, the ones on the outside, the ones who are outcast. When he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin, and that's like her whole livelihood, 
that audience would really get that feeling of what it means to be so living on the edge that that coin is everything. And when you find it, you are sure enough having a good time about it. When he tells a story about the sheep that's lost to an agrarian people, a wandering people, a people moving across the desert to make a living, these shepherds were not rich, but they had some property. And to lose one sheep, sheep are really weird, you lose one, the rest of them might follow that sheep off to wherever the sheep went. So the shepherd is risking his whole flock if he doesn't go get that one. And he goes to get that one. And the people in Jesus' time, the Bedouins, the, the Palestinian shepherds, the Jewish shepherds, the poor shepherds would have really resonated with that story. And then by the time we get to this father, this father who loses this son, this son who leaves home, who leaves everything that's comfortable to him, this second son in a culture, in a in a in a society where the first matters the most, the first one is the one with the inheritance, the second one, nobody cares about the second son. Sorry, Christian, are you still here? Nobody cares about that second son. Um, you know, when Jesus is telling that story to his people, maybe he has in mind Israel's leave-taking. How many times and ways Jesus' people kind of leave their God, kind of like, God, you're on my nerves. You, you didn't answer prayer. You didn't, you didn't bring it. You didn't do it. Let me worship some other gods. Let me build a golden calf, even you, though you just took me out of slavery. Maybe Jesus has in mind his own people's sense of leave-taking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Leah, Rachel, Mary. Or maybe, and this is my holy imagination at play, you know, Jesus gets so much woo-woo-ness about him, we forget that Jesus has got siblings. Yes, Jesus has siblings. Jesus has an older brother. So maybe when he's telling this story, maybe when he's telling the story about a younger son who feels, you know, disenfranchised, maybe that story is a little closer to home. Maybe Jesus got some other little friends who had big brothers, and they sat around the campfire thinking about, you know, Mark and Bob and whoever their names were, Isaac, and how they got all the goodies and they got all the power and they were going to inherit all the stuff and we second ones weren't going to get anything. I mean, maybe Jesus just had his own, pardon me, Jesus, butt on his shoulder. Maybe he just wasn't feeling happy about it. Maybe he resonated with that sense of outsiderness. Are you all with me? Maybe Jesus not only kind of culturally, his people, the Palestinians, in a culture of rich Romans occupying everything, they had a feeling of outsiderness. But maybe Jesus himself had a feeling of outsiderness. Either way, outsider plays a big role in all the stories he tells. The first will be last. The last will be first. Outsiders, welcome. These women who don't have any role in society, they're like running my ministry. Outsiders. Women can't speak in church, but guess what? We only have a gospel because Mary Magdalene went and told the story. I have seen the Lord. Outsider. You all are trying to keep the children from me? What? Bring the children here so I can touch them. In fact, if you don't know about children, you don't know about the kingdom of God. Outsider. 
kicking it with tax collectors, hanging out with the hoes, <laughs> or whores, <laughs> the prostitutes, outsider, outsider. Those who are on the margins, those who are who would be left out, discon disconnected, dispossessed, outsider, outsider. Samaritan, starring in the story about neighbor, outsider. Touching the lepers, spitting on the mud eyes, making the mud, healing the blind, disrupting everything the people thought they thought they knew about who mattered and what sin was about. This, this ain't nothing about the sins of the fathers. This is just folks sick and I can heal them. Like Jesus was always talking about the outside, in, the lost, the left out, the dispossessed, telling a story from his social location that was particular and therefore universal. Who can't relate to being left out in this room? Rock stars, all of you, but yet. Somebody one day didn't pick you. You lost your job. You lost your hope. You broke up with your lover, your partner. We have that outside feeling because we've all experienced loss. Hope, purpose. The unborn baby we prayed for. Our nana, our mother, our auntie. Our sense of what goodness meant, our, our sense of hope, our sense of per perfection. We've lost auditions, we didn't get the job, we didn't get picked for the team. And so it's a new program year and there's a lot to do. And you all know I'm the cheerleader for justice. Let's go get it. But today I want to cheerlead for more than that. I also want to cheerlead for us to be a place, a home place. The kind of home where love lives. So we can come home to love, come home to a place where our lostness is okay. Where our sorrow is okay. Where our uncertainty is okay, where our perplexedness is okay, where we didn't get all the things and we don't do all the things and we don't know all the answers and we feel overwhelmed and we feel like maybe we're not worthy, all of that. Can we be a home place, a love place, the kind of home where that's okay and expected? Grief is expected. Dissonance is expected. Not knowing is expected. Anger can be expected. Sorrow can be expected. And can we then be the kind of place that is the sort of in-between place, the liminal space? I'm lost, but I'm on a journey. I'm grieving, but I'm getting better. I, 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 I've lost my way, but I'm seeing a direction. Can we be the kind of place where exploration is celebrated, where not knowing is celebrated, where, where transitions are celebrated? where becoming is celebrated and honored and like, yeah, you go, I see you. I see you trying to be. 
And then, of course, we can be a place where we can celebrate the yes! I got it! I did it! Woohoo! Because our sorrows belong to each other. Our in-betweenness belongs to each other. And our celebration belongs to each other. And that's what home should feel like. That's what love should feel like. A place to test our self. See if we're getting it right. A place to be seen and known and loved and heard. And rescued. Found. Can we be the home of lostness and foundness? Can we be the kind of loving place where when somebody's missing, we go get them, we stalk them? Can we be the kind of place that's elastic and flexible? Not perfect. And if we can be that in here, can we take that everywhere we go? Can we who are the living body of Christ be home everywhere with the little babies making noise Can we be home at work? Can we be home with colleagues who are weird? Weird! (laughs) Super weird. Can we be home? Can we be home for the people who are counting on us, for mothers and fathers, for exes? Can we be home on the subway? Can we be gentle and gracious on the daggone subway? Can we take home to the streets, is what I'm saying, and create in each space we are inhabiting the place of grace, the place of I see you, the place of you're not perfect, but I watch you becoming, I can feel you becoming. Can we do that here and there? And can that be the beginning of reign of God building? In the context of safe exploration, can you see how being gracious can be the beginning of conversations that will disrupt left, right, wrong, right, that'll build the the kind of common good, my friends might say. Somebody told me, about 20 of y'all actually, I'm so glad you're coming back and I know you're gonna preach your butt off, they said. And I thought, oh, they need a good Jackie butt whip and they want me to yell at them. We can do it! That's what I thought that they were asking for. (laughs) But here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to be love. I'm asking you to celebrate when the one who doesn't deserve it comes back. I'm asking you to be elastic and godlike. Here, and there, and everywhere, till all of us know how loved we are, and therefore we are transformed. So you and they can come home to love. Leaders tell compelling stories that change the story. This is a story. Love wide enough for all. Amen.